Welcome to PD Heart, Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I am the host of this program. I'm professor of pediatrics at Mount Sinai Medical School in New York City. This week, I'm excited to introduce our co-host to the podcast this week, Dr. Sarah Pradhan. Dr. Pradhan, so nice to meet you and have you join us this week to co-host this week's episode. Thank you, Dr. Pass. I'm really excited to be here and looking forward to interviewing our guests. I am absolutely looking forward to your interviews of our guests, and I'm very excited that you're going to be having a recurring role here on the podcast, representing the fellows and the younger generation of pediatric cardiologists. This is very exciting to me. Sarah, maybe you could just share with the audience, uh, where did you grow up and uh, where did you go to medical school, do your residency, and where are you doing your fellowship now? Sure. So I am born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And I went to medical school in Ireland, and I did my residency in Cleveland, Ohio at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. And now I am a pediatric cardiology fellow at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Wow. So you are really an international person. Wow. So we're getting... (laughs) We're getting a lot for one new host. We have so much more experience and breadth than we have just with old Rob Pass here. <laughs> we have a Canadian, first of all, someone who's, who's very familiar with Europe, having gone to medical school there and have worked, uh, it sounds like, in the Midwest for the last couple of years. And Sarah, I, I know you're getting closer to the end of your fellowship. What year are you presently in your fellowship? I am nearing the end of second year of my fellowship. I see. And I think off air, you had mentioned that you were considering becoming an interventional cardiologist. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So you're applying, I'm guessing, pretty soon for those fellowships, which are very competitive, I'm sure. So, well, then I'm glad you have a few moments to host the podcast. How exciting. Sarah and I talked off air about what we wanted these episodes to be. And I think we're going to start off by just having a series of very inspiring figures in medicine, various different kinds of people in medicine, but particularly emphasizing, at least initially, women in medicine, because uh, this has been, an, I think, an under-mentioned topic and a critically important one in our field of pediatrics. Of course, there are more women than men. And in pediatric cardiology, you know, we're probably one of the few specialties in medicine where an actual, a woman was actually probably the founder of the field, both in Maud Abbott and Helen Tausig. So fine, long tradition of extraordinary physicians who are female. So I'm really excited both to have a young person join us on the podcast regularly, but also to have a female co-host, which is really exciting for me as well, providing us a different perspective. And so at this point in the podcast, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to just pass the baton to Sarah. Sarah's going to take over the rest of the podcast in our fellow takeover episode. She's going to introduce this week's exciting guest, Dr. Daphne Sue, who was very kind to join us this week. And then I'll kind of come back at the very end and wrap it up as I always do with the music that probably 90% of you stop listening at. So Sarah, take it away. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I am so excited that you're going to be a recurring host on the podcast. And of course, I wish you the very best of luck. Thanks so much, Dr. Pass. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I'm looking forward to interviewing and getting to know our guests. I am too. Dr. Sue is a professor of pediatrics and medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine at Children's Hospital at Montefiore. She is one of the nation's leading experts in the field of pediatric heart failure and heart transplant. 
Dr. Sue completed her medical education at the Yale University School of Medicine and her pediatrics residency and pediatric cardiology fellowship at Columbia. She served as the past director of pediatric heart failure at New York Presbyterian Hospital and was the chief of the Division of Pediatric Cardiology and co-director of the Pediatric Heart Center at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore for many years. She is a prolific clinician researcher, having participated in many multi-center studies in the United States and reviews grants for the FDA and NIH. She has also served in leadership positions in the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation, to name a few. Dr. Sue is an exceptional mentor to trainees and a strong supporter of women in cardiology, and I'm absolutely honored to have her join me on the podcast today. Hi, Dr. Sue. How are you? Just fine, Sarah. So happy to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast. And I'm really excited to hear about your journey through medicine and through life. And I'm certain that our viewers will be equally as excited as I am. I wanted to hear firstly, a little bit more about your story in terms of your childhood. Where did you grow up? Did you always wish to be a physician? And if so, did you have an inspiration to do so? I grew up in a small town outside of Cleveland, Ohio. I'm a first generation Chinese daughter of immigrant parents. They came here to go to college right after World War II and they never went home. It was the 1950s. There was a war with China going on, Korean War, and they stayed. My father's father settled in Cleveland because he got a job as a chemist in, in an oil uh, additive company there. And like all immigrants, they wanted to have a house to raise their children. So they bought a house in the way far suburbs of Cleveland. I was the only Chinese girl in the entire school. There was many white American people and I tried to blend in. So I had a very American childhood. I think I wanted to become a doctor sort of subconsciously because my great aunt was an obstetrician in Shanghai and delivered a lot of people in her career. My mother would have been a doctor, except she came to America and met my father and became a housewife, as many people do in the 19, did in the 1950s, 1960s. So that must have been transmitted to me. Plus, I always loved math and science, but I also liked people. So as, as we all know, it's a great way of melding your interests in the quantitative with your interest in being nosy about people. So that's how I really got into medicine. And I went to school and college knowing I wanted to be a doctor. And I wasn't discouraged despite the fact that pre-med was kind of horrible. <laughs> but, but once I got to medical school and got through the first two years and started on the wards, it seemed much better. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a really fantastic story. And I'm sure that a lot of the listeners can really understand, you know, being the child or the daughter of an immigrant and being first generation. Um, did you feel that you were the only person who was not white in your medical school at that time? Or did you feel like at that time, there were many others kind of similar to you? Well, I went, started medical school in 1978. And when I started medical school, there were of our class of 104, 15 women in our class. So we were unique in that aspect. Mm -hmm. And there were two, Asi two Asian girls, myself and my best friend, Lynn, who was Japanese that I had actually known in college. And they would mix us up all the time. And though Lynn and I looked totally different. <laughs> and there were a few people uh, who were African-American in my class, but mostly it wasn't. And there were just lots of white men. Mm -hmm. But I have to say it, 
we felt quite empowered. It was the beginning of the feminist movement. We felt like we were just going to be out there. We were going to do it all and have it all. It was, (laughs) it was really the part, the the part where women felt that they could do everything a little different than I think now, because people hadn't done it before. So I think everybody didn't quite realize it was going to be kind of hard to do everything. And you couldn't really follow the models you have of your male professors because they didn't have to do quite as much as you had to do in your life. But I have to say, I was felt very supported by the women in the class and the men in the class were fine too. I I can't, I can't complain. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly that's so inspiring because you know, even being at my stage and training, it's really inspirational to me to see other people who look like me um, at any point in their career, really. So I can only imagine what it was like for you as you were kind of paving the way for so many other women and so many other Asian women. Did you feel that there were any unique challenges that you had kind of at that early stage that you noticed or coming into now when you're really senior in your career? Well, I think it's always hard to think about where you sit in a in a crowd or where you sit amongst your peers or how you're viewed by other people around you. I think as a woman, an Asian woman at that time, you just got used to being the different one. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something you could focus on too much because you were always the different one. Right. When we did our medicine rotation, there were three women on the on my team and I remember the male attendings were astonished that they had three women on their team that had never happened before because there were just traditionally 10 years before there were six women in the class. So, so, so I think I felt more, more unique as a woman than I did as an Asian woman. And there was enough women around who could feel that we were supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. We were truly into the sisterhood and we were truly into, Oh, we were just better (laughs) because we had to have that confidence in order to, in order to overcome the part where people didn't think we were better. And yeah, that's always hard as anyone, I, everybody, even the, all the men on the teams, they all, as a student, you always feel like you must not know as much. Mm-hmm. People must not be treating you as if you're a person who could participate on the team because you don't know as much as everybody around you. Mm-hmm. So that feeling is always there. And you have to say, well, that's just because I'm young and I'm smart and I'm going to be able to contribute in my own way. Self-confidence just comes, I think, as you get more comfortable with the people you're working with. Yep, definitely. I feel like in medicine as well, you know, as we we learn through a long training process and a very rigorous training process as well. And I know that certainly a lot of trainees feel a sense of almost like an imposter syndrome, that they never know enough, despite however many hours they spend doing something you know, with time, as you mentioned, you gain those skills often without even knowing it. And then having amazing mentors and people who are very, very senior to you showing you that they're doing it and they show you how to do it. I think that that is so important to have, you know, mentors like yourself for those who are training. As I mentioned, it's people like you who inspire all of us younger generations um, as we progress throughout our careers. With that being said, If fellows come to you seeking advice, is there a specific piece of advice that you like to give them? Well, I, I always like to tell people, you know, you got this far, you were successful Mm -hmm. and actually you're not that young. So you have a track record. One of my former fellows was laughing because one of my favorite lines to my fellows, how old are you? What year are you? Because I really do think that people have so much knowledge. Even as trainees, 
mm-hmm. that they can bring to it. But what you want to see in your trainee is, is see them get, have the knowledge, have confidence in knowledge, and then start to stick up for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting evolution that you see in fellows and even young attendings. And, and you'll see people really respond to you and you actually say, no, I think it might be this for these reasons. Mm-hmm. You have that knowledge. You have so much more at your fingertips. You've heard you're being exposed to so many more people than many of the attendings yeah. because we get on our little silos, but you've seen 10 different people do 10 different things <laughs> and you can point that out. And that's one of the most fun things about working with fellows is watching them get that confidence to say, wait a minute, you really mean to say that? Because it could think of it this way. So that the sense of internal confidence. Mm-hmm. I can't part that to a fellow. You can try to encourage to say, hey, that was a great idea. But you just want to be able to say, hey, I have a great idea. Yeah. And not depend on other people to give you that validation. It's a very hierarchical medicine, actually. Though that's good because we're very careful and we're moving up the chain. And we're making sure we don't make mistakes. But sometimes it's to the detriment. Where yeah. people do feel in that hierarchy, no matter how old they are or whatever other life experience they have, they are always very easily put into a slot. Mm-hmm. You're a first year fellow, you're an intern, you're a president. You're, and that yeah. makes you behave in a certain way, which really might not reflect your knowledge base or Definitely. your skills. So you have to you have to judge yourself kindly. As, yeah. as a resident and then you'll and a fellow and you'll see people respond to that. Yeah, I think that what you said, having kind judgment for yourself really, really resonates um, because it allows you to think retrospectively, you know, give yourself your own internal feedback, but also be kind to yourself. You know, what you just shared with us is incredibly valuable. So that's really amazing to hear from you. Um, and it's clear that you really love mentorship. Would you mind sharing with us what your most cherished moments were from mentoring somebody or even just in general? Well, I, th- I, I do think about mentoring um, now that I'm a mom. Um, mm-hmm. I think about it as you're looking for the best in everybody. And if they're around you, they deserve to be there. Yeah. And you have to make them see what they can be. Because sometimes some people don't see that. That yeah. is what a mentor can see. You have the experience to say to yourself, oh, this person can really do this. Or this person really needs to work on this, but it's mm-hmm. only because you want to be helping them get better. That, yeah. That's like the best part of mentoring is seeing the potential in somebody and having them do it. The hardest thing is to not tell people exactly what to do, which I have a tendency to do, <laughs> but to try to get them to, to, to by themselves figure out, say, you can do this, but how are you going to do it? How are you going to figure that out? And that's like the most rewarding thing is to see people take really great care of a patient with something you talked about a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago or do the great research that you yeah. discussed, but they actually do it and they yeah. build on it or to write the paper. Those, those have all been experiences and the best experiences to see people succeed in whatever they decided to do. Mm-hmm. When you get old, like me, you have a lot of people who <laughs> you've worked with and you got, you get to see the story as it turns out five, 10 years later and yeah. you see, wow, that person really took what they had and they just did amazing things. I know people who were fellows or medical students or high school students, and now mm-hmm. they're attending and they're writing papers. And I think, wow, yes. isn't that incredible? Look, I, yeah. I, and it's not, I take credit for it. It's just, I think it's amazing. They, they actually were able to do all these new things that they, I knew they didn't have the confidence. They didn't feel they had the confidence in themselves mm-hmm. to do. 
yeah. and then they actually actualized it. That that's yeah. really amazing. That's a great thing. Yeah, and I mean, you might even not know exactly what it is, but you kind of say, "Hey, you seem to really like this." Everyone needs that. I need mm-hmm. that because Absolutely. you can't have the same perspective on what you like or what you're doing when you're doing it. It's only when somebody outside says, "Gee, you seem like you're really good at this." that you can say to yourself, well, yeah, I say, yeah, I see them because they're caught in the weeds. You get that from everybody. You get that, I keep saying, your peer mentors, your peer mentors, because they're like your friends. They, they see you at work. They see what you do. They see you or they see you at a meeting and they know who you are and they give you this perspective of, oh, look what's happened in the past year, in the past six months, in the past two years. And you say, oh yeah, look at where, where I was and now where I am might only come from someone you don't, might only see you know, every couple of months to talk to once a year. Right. But you're using that as your metric to say, how have I changed? And um, definitely, you know, having mentors are clearly so impactful in whatever capacity that they come into your journey throughout medicine. And you've shown us that really nicely about, you know, you could be meeting with someone regularly every month. It could be someone at a different institution who has, you know, graduated from training. So really having uh, such an impactful mentor can be incredibly valuable for trainees, like I said, in whatever capacity. So thank you for sharing that. And Dr. Sue, you also mentioned that mentorship became almost like something on another level when you became a mother. And I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit more about your journey through training, uh, being a mother, being a woman, how you balance that really in a very exciting time of pediatric cardiology. Yes, that is, that's a hard question, isn't it? Because it's it's setting priorities. It's learning to set your priorities. Of course, your family's the highest priority. Your kids are high priority. But at that moment, maybe they're not the highest at that minute yep. or that hour in the day. And knowing what you wanted to achieve at work or what I enjoyed about work or what I really hoped to do at work was a way of allowing me to say, I am going to be a academic pediatric cardiologist, and I'm going to be a good mother, and I'm going to have to figure it out every minute of the day. So today I have to go to the school and I have to take the cupcakes, and then I have to come back and have my meeting, and then I have, but I actually enjoy all that. (laughs) I I found it very, I don't like to do the same thing all day, all all the time. I get bored. So I I enjoyed it, but it was difficult. I'm not saying it wasn't hard. I had amazing help. I have a husband who um, we were just arguing about whether or not he cooked or cleaned, which he didn't, by the way. <laughs> but he was a great dad. I had a wonderful babysitter who was still in my life. And I had parents who came from Cleveland to help me whenever I was having a really busy week on service. But I had to coordinate a lot. I had to keep a calendar. I had to be organized. Yeah. And I also had to set people's expectations of me. If I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that, It took me a long time to figure out to say, I really can't do that. Not because I don't want to, but I just can't. Either way, right? I can't go on the field trip. I would tell my kid, I'm not not going to the museum with you this time. But I'll I'll go another time. I set my expectations of my children. Or I would say, well, I can't really go to that committee meeting and do that because I have to go to the school field trip. (laughs) Right. So, but you don't, you don't Mm overpromise. That was a big lesson to learn. It's not learning to say no. It's just learning to say, that's something I can't do right now, not because I don't want to or not because it's not interesting. Sometimes it is because you don't want to because your priorities are you have 
12 things to do when you can do 10. And so, right. of course, you hopefully get rid of the two things you don't want to do. Don't do the two things you don't want to do and get rid of the things you want to do. You have, but only you know that. I guess the art of saying no to certain things, and maybe it's not a no, but maybe I can do this another time instead. And really just being able to learn how to have impeccable time management, really, and be able to almost triage your, your priorities at the time. Just know I was not good at when I was young. <laughs> I had plenty of projects that I thought I would do, promises I made to people, and I couldn't do them. It felt terrible. And it would weigh on me and sometimes it would just, but I just couldn't get it done. And you know, then you, you learn a lesson from that too. Mm -hmm. I'm not a good feeling. And you think, okay, how did I get in that situation? It's because I didn't speak up and say, I think I overcommitted myself right now. So I'm not going to do it. Let's find something, somebody to do it for you now instead of wait three months and then it's too late. I still have problems with that. We all have problems <laughs> with that, but, <laughs> but you did learn. And I learned things that, especially with the children they have things that you you have to get a new calendar so I would not know that I had the holiday assembly and it was a shock every year for about three years then I realized oh it's <laughs> the end of the year they tell you and I would put that down and I would make sure I was not on call and I would not gonna be in clinic and I would do everything I can and I would trade away a weekend day for a weekday because mm -hmm. I just had to have that time off and then I would feel relaxed <laughs> right. But it took that took me a long time to learn too. Because everything's everything you do that's new is the first time, it's it never goes quite right the first For time. For sure. And having that, I guess, learning over time to have even more skills on time management when you add other priorities to your life and just building that support system, it sounds like is something that all of us need to just think about as we go through training or, you know, as we become attendings and progress throughout our careers. Dr. Sue, would you also be able to share with us what drew you specifically towards heart failure and heart transplant specifically? I'm really interested to hear your story about that. Well, it's kind of a good story and a life lesson. When I finished my fellowship, it was 1988, and I had to stay in New York. My husband was a lawyer at a law firm, and he also was a New Yorker and didn't want to, didn't want to leave New York City. So couldn't imagine. I went to talk to my boss, Walton Gersney, a great man. And I said to him, well, I really want to stay in New York. And by the way, I want to stay in Columbia because I like it here. And he said, all right, let me look around. And he came back and said, well, I have a job and it's in heart transplant. And I thought to myself, I don't want to do heart transplant. It was 18, 1988. Uh, neonatal surgery was just starting. Switches were just starting to be done. The 1985, Chuck Mullins had come and balloon dilated a pulmonary artery with us and put in balloons worked. Jim Locke had wow. come and showed us how to balloon aortic valve. It was like very exciting. <laughs> and I didn't want to do heart transplant because it had nothing to do with congenital heart disease. But Walton said, that's the job I have. Linda Adnesia was all by herself. We did the first heart transplant. When I was a fellow, it was 84. It was very exciting, but it wasn't really cardiology. It was immunology. It was learning about heart function, learning about heart failure. Mm -hmm. And I said, all right, I'll do that. Turned out it was obviously a great decision, a great opportunity, because the opportunities that come to you come because there's a need in the field. Mm -hmm. This was a new field. It was brand new. There, nobody knew anything. First transplants were being done 82, 83. We were at the cutting edge. So I was able to be watching something that was happening in front of our eyes 
and trying to figure it out. There was no randomized controlled trial. There was no evidence. So for my career, it came out, it came out really well. So I, mm-hmm. I can't criticize Dr. Christie for giving me the opportunity <laughs> or my husband for not letting me move out of New York. And I think it's a good lesson for people to know, you know, in your life, you might think you want to do this. The opportunity arises to that. And you say, oh, okay, well, I have reasons to do that and I'll do it. And if you are the kind of person that learns to take advantage or that she learns to see the opportunities and things, see what's interesting about things, you will get ahead. And then you will have opportunities to do other things. Because of my involvement with heart transplant, pediatric heart transplant study group, because of my involvement with the Carbidolol trial that I met, Bob Shaddy, because we were transplant doctors together. I got involved in drug trials with that. Then I was able to join the heart network because I had trial experience. All that came, whole field was so open. I could practically make my own way. And surely you paved the way for, you know, so many (laughs) people in the future. It's absolutely inspirational to hear really about what you're saying is, you know, the cutting edge and the beginning of pediatric cardiology. It's a reminder that it it wasn't that long ago, really. So it's really incredible. Do you have a specific moment that sticks out in your mind that was particularly memorable from training? Oh, I think I was mostly scared during my training. (laughs) (laughs) There were so many things to do. Mm -hmm. So many things to learn. I never felt I succeeded in my training. I did do my first research project in in training, and that was interesting where I had to input all this data onto little cards that you would feed into the computer, the supercomputer that was a really large room. And it was blood pressures and people who got propranolol. But it was actually memorable because I remember doing all that work and typing all these blood pressures in and sticking the cards in and then getting data Mm -hmm. and getting a result and going to present it. At a meeting, I went to the SPR meeting in California. I remember that distinctly because I got to go on Space Mountain with my boss <laughs> and present my research. And that really, that experience was so much fun. I decided I really liked research. I liked it that you could take a lot of data, do a lot of work with a lot of numbers, and then in the end, you can analyze it, which takes you so much shorter time than putting all the data in, but it's still very rewarding. And with heart transplant, we just started writing all these different papers. They were small little series, but no one knew anything. I'm doing adult congenital heart disease right now. There are parallels to that because adult congenital heart disease is, again, a new field. There aren't very many patients. Every patient teaches you something. And I'm having a great time with that because it's very similar to my experience with heart transplant. Heart transplant has matured now that we have a big transplant study group. We have multi-center studies, we have an action network, we have quality. And I love that. But I also mm-hmm. like this part where you're trying to figure out, well, gosh, look at that one patient. What does that mean? What does that tell you? Where on the spectrum of disease does that fit? Because I never heard that before. That, that was one of the that was really a, a, a really rewarding time. Also quite incredible to hear as well how you mentioned that 
pediatric heart transplant was just at the beginning uh, when you were in your training. And now you've transitioned into a, a different subspecialty, which has just shown really how incredible the advances have been over the past few decades for our patients with congenital heart disease to think retrospectively uh, about the field of pediatric cardiology and how it's evolved and certainly all of your contributions to it. Lastly, Dr. Sue, I could chat with you for a very long time, um, <laughs> but I, I'm sure that we all want to know now that in the senior part of your career, when really you are one of the nation's experts and recognized leaders, what do you like to do outside the hospital? Well, I like to see my friends. I have a lot of good friends. I'm not a very good tennis player, but I have ladies doubles. We kind of keep score and we have a great time. I have friends because I've lived in New York for so long that I've known for years and we love to get together. And of course, it's really special now after COVID to get together. I have two great kids, a great daughter-in-law and I have a new granddaughter. So that's wow. another thing that I spend time with is my new granddaughter who is very healthy and wonderful and so much fun. And I love to travel. I love to travel. I love to see new places. I love to meet new people. That's what I love about medicine. You're always meeting new people. You're mm -hmm. always hearing about lives. The trust people place in you and the, the insight you gain into different families and how they live and where they live and where they were and how their lives are. It's like a movie all the time. I, I love to travel, but I also sort of feel like I'm traveling when I see my patients. Yes, learning about everyone's story. And certainly, I think all of us really, this has been a very strange year, the pandemic and everything. All of us, I'm sure, feel the same. We're ready to get back into the conferences, get back to meeting with people in person. Although we've all done what we can with virtual, it's, it's just not the same as when you're face-to-face -face with people. But at the same time, it's opened so many opportunities, for example, like for us to chat from you know states away, which is really nice. Well, Dr. Sue, I feel incredibly lucky to be able to hear you share your amazing life and career story. As a woman and as a South Asian female, your story really spoke to me, and I know fellows and trainees all around the world will be just as inspired as I was. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been really a pleasure talking to you, Sarah. I hope you enjoyed our interview with our new co-host, Dr. Pradhan, and the inspiring Dr. Daphne Sue. Despite being friends and colleagues with Daphne for nearly 25 years, I can honestly say that I learned a number of interesting new things about Daphne from Dr. Pradhan's wonderful interview, and I'm sure you will agree that Dr. Pradhan was simply terrific in her first assignment. I wish again to thank Daphne for coming on the show for the second time to inspire our listeners, and also to thank Sarah Pradhan, who will be back in just a few weeks with a wonderful and inspiring woman in cardiovascular medicine. You simply won't want to miss that interview. To conclude this 166th episode of PD Heart, co-hosted with Dr. Pradhan, we'll end with a lovely recording of Alla Paterna Mano from Verdi's Macbeth, sung in an ancient recording that's been adjusted to modern times, sung by the great tenor, routinely considered the king of all tenors, Enrico Caruso. Caruso lived from 1873 till 1921, and so the recording we'll hear today is well over 100 years old. But the style and quality of his voice influenced all tenors that followed him, and you can easily hear why in this recording. Thanks so much to Dr. Pradhan for joining us as the co-host. What an exciting event this was. Finally, thanks so much to Dr. Sue for inspiring us with her story. Look forward to seeing everybody next week for our next episode. 
I'm <laughs> 